Welcome to this episode of Slate's Spoiler Specials. I'm Sam Adams, a senior editor at Slate, and this time we're spoiling The Sandman, the first season of the Netflix series based on Neil Gaiman's comic books. This is a story about the Lord of Dreams, who finds himself imprisoned by human sorcerers for almost a century, does battle with Lucifer herself, and is then threatened with the destruction of his realm by an eye-eating serial killer called the Corinthian. Spoiling alongside me is Slate's book critic, Laura Miller. Hello, Laura. Hi, Sam. This is a project that's been in the works for decades since these comics were originally published in the late 1980s. Uh, So I just wanted to start by sort of establishing what sort of baggage you and I are bringing to this. So, Laura, are you a fan of the comic books? What sort of expectations did you come to this series with? I'm a fan of them and of Gaiman's novels in general. And I know that he thinks of The Sandman as being sort of his magnum opus. But for me, it feels a little on the jejun side. It's a like a feels like a, more of an early work. Although, of course, it's fabulous that he collected, you know, all of these artists together to represent his vision with him. And the work that did was amazing. I, I do kind of feel like some of his later work is a little on the more mature side and easier for me to, I don't know, identify with. But, uh, but Nevertheless, Sandman does have a special place in my heart. It was the first graphic novel that really made me love the form and took it to places that were the kind of places I wanted to go. And I think like a lot of women feel the same way about Sandman. They they maybe didn't get hooked in by superhero narratives, but this more mythic storyline had a deeper appeal. Right. Yeah. No, I came to this. I mean, I, I was a huge uh, Sandman fan when most of the comics were coming out. I still have a very clear memory of the first issue that I picked up, which is part of uh, one of the episodes in this first season and that takes place at a convention of serial killers. I remember like picking this up off the spinner rack at my local Walden Books, um, all the original Issues have these incredibly, like, elaborate, beautiful Dave McKeon uh, collages for their covers. And it was just like, what's this? And it just, like, blew me away. I was sort of instantly swept away by the whole thing. Early pandemic, uh, you know, a couple months in when it became clear that I wasn't going to be spending any money on, like, restaurants or travel or concerts for quite some time. I I took a, a small portion of that money that I wasn't spending and bought one of the sort of large deluxe oversized anthologies of the Sandman, um, which you have, if you have a hundred bucks, you're not doing anything with lying around is a, a pretty nice purchase. Reread them and, and they still kind of strike me very much the same way. I think in some ways I may be attached to those initial reactions. They hold up extraordinarily well. So I came to this as someone who's, you know, a big fan of the comics, but also I've seen a lot of comics that I have been big fans of adapted very badly. <laughs> so I was, uh, I'm including some by Neil Gaiman. So uh, I was excited, but uh, anxious, I guess I would describe my mean going into this. So what did you think? I mean, did they get anywhere close to conveying that incredible galvanizing experience that you had when you first picked up that, that issue? 
I mean, there, there are parts of it I like a lot. I mean, I was definitely, I knew, I had some sense of how I was going to react to this when I saw the first trailer and there are images in that, in that just in that trailer and all throughout the series that are just taken directly from the comic books. And I was just like, oh man, like this is, I mean, this is total fanboy shit that I would normally try to be above. But in this case, they're just absolutely not. Like I just, you know, the little prison in Roderick Burgess's basement, the dream gets locked up in. Um, the first shot of uh, Desire's, you know, palace. I can't resist it. You know, so I, I loved that stuff. One thing comics can do that I really like and it's really exciting is they can do sort of crazy one-off issues where they, you know, bring in a different set of artists. This issue takes place in a world where everyone's made of cheese. Like they could just do crazy stuff for an issue and then go right back to the main storyline. And because all these, you know, Marvel and DC universes are calculated to make you feel like if you haven't watched the previous 50 hours of content, um, you're going to be left behind. So you have to subscribe to whatever service and constantly be watching it. They don't do those sorts of things. And Sandman um, was really built around that whole ethos. And it's not even just the one-offs, but like every storyline would have like a different set of artists. And because the main character is the Lord of Dreams, he lives in a lot of different worlds and they're always sort of changing shape and look and Gaiman would change the way he wrote. And he would really just, I mean, it's an amazing springboard for like a super ambitious writer in his late 20s for one thing because it's like look at all the different things i can show i can do i can do horror i can do shakespeare i can do this i can do that and this i guess because it's a tv series and you just need more of a sense of coherence this really doesn't have that excitement to me and i feel like the look of it is kind of bog standard bbc adaptation so it's kind of let down by that on on that respect i'm glad that people are liking it i sort of was a little iffy about it what did you think laura I mean, I agree with what you say about the lack of visual panache. I mean, sometimes it looks really good, but it always looks good in kind of the same way. I think it's what you're saying. You know, if you did the issue where people were all made out of cheese, then you'd get in someone who was really good at drawing cheese, but they'd just be there for a little while, and then you'd have somebody else come in later. I think there's a possibility for it to go in that direction, but I think to get it established first it does need that continuity that you were talking about. There was this adaptation that was an audio-only adaptation, which you would think would be even more difficult because the comics are so visual. But I felt that it really worked, partly because uh, it was liberated in some ways from the need to sort of reproduce the world visually. And as a result, the actors were more free to interpret the characters in ways that that worked for a drama. I mean, they because all you can have with audio is a drama, they had to make it more dramatic. I think the problem that this series confronts and sometimes solves and sometimes doesn't is that there's not a lot of traditional drama inherent in the first, you know, few issues or episodes of the Sandman. It's mostly just the sort of world building and tone establishing that you sort of need to do because you're presenting an entirely new sort of mythos. You know, these these characters, the dream and his siblings are like gods, but they're also like these allegorical personifications. They're not like any, they're not a familiar god from a, a different um, cultural tradition that you might have heard of. And so, you know, you just, you have to ramp up sort of more slowly, you know, you have to be told what's going on. And I do think there's room for it to be wildly different in tone 
going forward if the series has a chance to go forward. But there is just the problem that the main character, at least at the beginning, is trapped in a glass box and refusing to speak, which makes him not very compelling. And then once he gets out, you know, he's sort of this impassive person. He obviously has feelings, and we eventually learn that he's had all these relationships, but he seems just you know, his affect is very flat and, um, or sort of just sort of uniformly broody and somber. And it's sort of hard to sort of figure out if he's the main character and where he's going. And that to me is like a dramatic problem that the, that the audio adaptation was oddly enough more capable of sort of reworking in its own interest than the series has been. But I still really like the series a lot. Well, let's. Um, we're not going to walk through every plot detail of eleven hours of content, but let's sort of deal with this in terms of arcs. There's sort of two main storylines in this first season, and then a couple of one-off um, episodes, which I think we'll, we'll talk about at the end. Before we get to that, let's take a quick break. And we're back. The first storyline is, as we sort of mentioned, Morpheus, the King of Dreams, is um, it's in the 19-teens. We start off, and uh, Morpheus, the King of Dreams, is imprisoned um, by this uh, sort of occultist named Roderick Burgess, who is trying to capture death. His uh, son was killed in World War One, um, and he's trying to, to bring him back. So they uh, he casts the spell, accidentally captures Dream, and then holds him captive for basically the, the better part of a century, during which time many parts of the world sort of go to hell in various ways. Eventually he does get out, but he's had his the tools of his office stolen from him, which are a, a helmet, a pouch of dream sand, and a, basically a magic ruby. Um, and so there's an episode each um, devoted to getting those things back, which climaxes in the, the infamous diner episode. But um, before we get to that, what did you make of these first, I guess, sort of four episodes before we get to the diner, Laura? Well, you know, I think I liked the one where he goes to hell the best because it's kind of a classic form of legend, you know, the sort of transformation battle, you know, two magical beings constantly changing their shapes in a contest, you know, a battle. So, you know, one person might be a snake, then the other person might turn into an elephant, and then they have the edge, and then the first person then turns into a mouse and scares the elephant. Those are some of the classic ones, and it's a type of legend that occurs through a lot of cultures. And I also really loved Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer, Morningstar, the devil, just not how you typically see that character depicted. She looks kind of like an angel, though she has bat wings, and she has a sort of weird angelic manner about her. And um, she is a powerful being like Dream, and so contest between them is well matched. The transformational duel that he has is with a with a demon. Um, but, you know, you feel like the stakes are high for him, and um, and you know, she's an interesting antagonist as opposed to these sort of hapless human beings who he basically has to hunt down like some kind of detective. So that was probably my favorite one. There were things about the comic that I never really got. Like, I never really understood why Cain and Abel live in the dreaming and what they have to do with anything. I I loved the way that the character Lucienne was reimagined and played by the actress Vivienne I, I'm going to mangle this pronunciation, but Achiampong, 
Um, she's fantastic. I mean, there are little things I liked in all of them, but as a whole, I think I liked the Battle in Hell one better than the other ones. Right. I mean, you mentioned um, both Lucienne and uh, Lucifer, played by Gwendolyn Christie, in this. And, I th- and it's important to note, just for the whole series, I think this is, a, in general, um, an extremely faithful adaptation of the comics. I mean, down to the images, as I mentioned, but also the dialogue is often, you know, word for word from Gaiman's word balloons. Um, but one thing they do do is, you know, and, and the, the comic is looking back on it now in a way that not many people were thinking about in like the late 80s is ex- you know, extremely white um, and extremely male. So they have gender flipped primarily um, and and race spent a little bit, but mostly just sort of gender flipped a lot of the roles. So Dream's librarian, Lucien, becomes Lucienne. Um, Lucifer um, becomes a woman if, to the extent that angels have gender um, in the first place. Desire is played by a, a non-binary actor. That character was, Desire was almost kind of non-binary to begin with. Like, I just remember thinking, is that a boy or a girl or both right. or neither? Yeah. Few people were using that word at the time, and, and the comics certainly didn't. But I mean, that is, yeah, that, that doesn't even really count. That is almost more faithful than a change. Yeah. But it's, it's, you know, still like noteworthy, I guess should be the term, um, in terms of mainstream TV casting. Yeah, it's perfectly cast. I mean, this is exactly what that character should be like. In addition to being just a cool casting move it is the perfect casting move yeah no it's really yeah absolutely great um so yeah so we go through this whole series of um machinations some of which you know work better than others um i like the hell episode as well again mostly because of Gwendolyn christie who just has a great sort of you know satanic presence in in her performance um and then we get to the diner episode which is probably worth dealing um with itself do you want to sort of set up the premise there laura a little bit while dream is tracking down his lost talismans or whatever they are his tools there's a person named john d who is named after an elizabethan magician i don't know why but anyway he's a sort of a crazy guy who got the ruby from his mother who was the lover of the occultist who captured dream and it its power is that it can sort of make dreams come true. Although one of the weird things about this series is that it doesn't make that much of a distinction between sleeping dreams and sort of daydreams or wishes. So um, so it's never, uh, you know, really clear what kind of dreams are, are coming true. Um, and he's, so he's chasing this guy trying to get the ruby back. And the guy goes into this 24-hour diner and there's a bunch of people in there. And he basically sort of strips away all their pretensions because John D has this thing of like, he's one of these radical honesty type guys that people should just do and say whatever they want. And it turns into this sort of weird debacle of sex and grotesque violence. And I'm just going to come right out here and say this is the one issue of The Sandman that I hated. And I also hated the episode based on it for more or less the same reasons. Like I kept hoping it would be better than the comic book, but ultimately it just really didn't do it for me. I thought in the original, it was just very 
edgelordish, although that word didn't exist at the time. It was like, like, this is so dark. This is so violent. It was so sort of self-congratulatory about its darkness. And I, I kind of didn't really believe it. Like, I didn't really believe that all these people were seething with all of these, like, violent yearnings. It just seemed completely over the top. And it remains like, you know, my least favorite episode in this episodic story. Right. I mean, I think uh, I might have just been a teenage edgelord when I read that episode <laughs> the first time, but I definitely remember liking it a lot. And, um, you know, I still like find it pretty powerful in the comic, mostly because um, it, it, it's so um, condensed in the comic. It, you know, there's a lot of like pretty gory, awful stuff that, that happens in it. People like nailing their hands to countertops and gouging out their own eyes and stuff like that. Um, but a lot of that sort of happens either you know, between panels or just in a single panel or something like that. It's that I find really effective. You know, when you blow that up into an hour of TV, really sort of showing people doing that stuff, I think, yeah, I think it does lose some of its power. You know, when I started the series, I was like, I don't know how this is, but I'm definitely going to watch the, the Diner episode because I got to see how they do that. I do like David Thewlis as John D a lot. I think that's a great performance. I love him. Yeah, yeah, he's fantastic. I mean, David Thewlis is fantastic in in everything and he's particularly good at playing sort of bad guys who are sort of chaos agents and in this you know he sort of reprises a a, a type of character he's played throughout his career I mean definitely it is hugely enhanced because if I remember correctly in the comic it's the madman is just this kind of repulsive toad-like guy sort of like, you know, rubbing his hands together in the corner about how people are gouging their eyes out, which, like, I, I just do not understand how that is anybody's dream. <laughs> so, I mean, that's where it's confused. Like, you might have a nightmare where you gouge your own eyes out, although I don't know how many people have ever had a nightmare like that. And you might have a fantasy about having sex with your coworker, but it's all kind of jumbled up together in this way that I found unconvincing. But um, but he is fantastic. I mean, I actually like all of the scenes with him and Jolie Richardson, who plays his mother, so much. You know, they're both so good together that it did redeem it a little bit for me. But I just, I just hate that whole diner storyline <laughs> so much. Yeah. All right. Well, so, so Dream eventually gets his tools back and his powers, um, but there's more trouble yet to come. But before we get to this next section of the story, um, let's take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. And we're back. All right, so Morpheus, the Lord of Dreams, has successfully regained all the tools of his office, destroyed them, and gotten back more power than he's ever had in millennia. Things seem to be going pretty well for him. But unfortunately, there are two people roaming around the world who are going to cause uh, pretty big problems for him. One is a character named the Corinthian, played by Boyd Holbrook, who is sort of a rogue nightmare who has made his way into the waking world when Dream was imprisoned, um, and is now basically a serial killer who rips out people's eyes and eats them with his own eyes, which are actually uh, little mounts. And the other one is Rose Walker, who is a dream vortex, um, which is basically a human born with the power to destroy uh, or the boundaries between the dream world and the waking world and thus obliterate both of them. Um, you know, this, I, I think, looking back, is really where the comic kind of came into its own. Like the initial sort of fetch quest cycle is, 
you know, you see what's coming, but Doll's House is really where Gaiman's imagination started to take off, and the comic was already an enormous hit at that point. Um, Laura, what did you make of this Doll's House mini story? I agree with you. Here we have a character who is human, and so therefore is going through a journey of self-discovery. I mean, she finds out that she has a living relative that she didn't know about. She's trying to this is Rose Walker. She's trying to reunite with her little brother who has um, been in a foster home. And um, in the meantime, she's being pursued by the Corinthian who just wants to just sort of burn it all down and and help her do it. And also by Dream, who is trying to, well, I mean, you eventually realize that the only way that he can keep the vortex from destroying everything is by by killing her. And even though he is also friendly to her in a way. And along the way on this quest, they meet another runaway dream called Fiddler's Green, played by Stephen Fry. And they go to this wacky convention of, of serial killers, which um, I think is funny in a way that the diner's scene was not. I definitely felt like with the idea of the serial killer convention that is like a science fiction convention, only everybody is a serial serial killer and is sort of indirectly talking about their work, but not being too explicit about it. Um, the humor that I think Gaiman is really good at starts to come through and and is and really adds a lot to the story, along with the just the human quest of Rose to reunite with her brother and to sort of figure out what's going on with her and these people that she meets in this boarding house that she stays in. Um, all of that is where the whole series just gels. Right. I mean, I wanted to see the convention episode updated a little bit to, to sort of modernize a little bit because it's so um, it's such a Neil Gaiman, um, you know, in addition to being like a sort of comics nut um, was initially kind of worked as a journalist. Um, he His first book was a quickie bio of Duran Duran and he wrote the sort of fan's guide to Douglas Adams, uh, Hitchhiker's Cruise Guide to the Galaxy. So he worked in kind of, you know, fan culture from numerous angles. And this issue, I think a little more sharply than the episode, are, are really just such a pointed and, and somewhat vicious <laughs> attack on like convention culture. It's just all these like, you know, sort of sweaty misfits getting together um you know, talking about how good it is that they feel understood. Um, but instead of just being kind of like creepy comic book nerds, they're actually murderers. So I think the commentary is like, is pretty succinct. Um, I wish, you know, I, this could have felt a little bit more like a, a con in, in 2022 than it does sort of one in the 1980s. But I love that aspect of it. And it's something that comes back in um, the Calliope episode, which we'll talk a little bit more. But yeah, you can see Gaiman, um, both in his late 20s and now in his 60s, really um, taking aim at aspects of sort of, you know, fan culture and uh, writerly arrogance and stuff like that. You know, I think the show is really at its best when it's working on a bunch of different levels at once. And that's like, that's an episode where it all really comes together very well for me. Well, I'm going to guess the more generic nature of the the conference is meant to make it more relatable to more people because not that many people have been to fan conventions although comic-con is really popular but it, it could be a convention of like car salesmen or something and then the you know they're so excited they want to bring the corinthian in because he is like a celebrity within their little scene and he's like the guy who sold like more cadillacs than anybody else 
you know, who else wants to bring a notorious serial killer <laughs> into their own company? And, and, and they're sort of also kind of scared of him. Like, the, like the fact that it's in this kind of banal sort of, you know, uh, Marriott type <laughs> hotel is just so funny to me that um, I really, I, I really enjoyed that whole aspect and the comical way all the different serial killers their pride and their own little bailiwick and their desire to what do they call themselves collectors so it's like the desire to keep on collecting but then knowing that they can't while they're at this convention because it's against the rules it's sort of like the hitman hotel and in john wick where you like it's where all the hitmen stay, but you can't hit anybody when you're in the motel. You know, it's just it's it's just a very it's a very clever, funny thing. And I, I I do think I appreciate that it's not as sharp about fan culture, but I do think it's meant to just you know speak to anyone who's ever been to a convention of any kind. All right, so that sort of wraps up the main story of of the Sandman's uh, first season. Um, but there's a lot of things in this that aren't the main story. We're gonna talk about those a little bit after we hear from one of our sponsors. If you enjoy spoiler specials, the best way to support the show is by joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You'll get no ads on any Slate podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate website, and access to every article and advice column on Slate, never hitting the paywall. You'll also get bonus segments or episodes on shows like Slowburn, Political Gabfest, and The Culture Gabfest. And you'll also be supporting podcasts like this one, which would not be possible without your support. Slate Plus helps keep this show going. To join today, go to slate.com slash spoilerplus. Again, that's slate.com slash spoiler plus. And we're back. All right. So, Laura, we've discussed sort of the main storylines in this first season. But as I mentioned, you know, one of the great things about the comic is that it can sometimes shoot off in different directions for an issue or two. Um, and the series does it in uh, two episodes, one of which actually dropped after the main season arrived Um we were told it was going to be a 10-episode season. Then surprise, um, it was an 11-episode season. Um, but let's kind of go through those. The first of those um, is The Sound of Her Wings. Um, is the name of the comic book issue. And this introduces um, the first of the Endless, other than Dream, who we really get to know, which is his sister, Death. What did you think of this half an episode, I guess? Well, this is also one of my favorite interludes in the comics. And it was one of my favorite episodes of the series, partly because... Gaiman's characterization of death is so lovely. She's so sympathetic and warm. She's a great counterpoint to his impassiveness. And also she's constantly sort of teasing him about his impassiveness. And there's this kind of concern for the human that she has, that he lacks, and that she's trying to sort of you know, give him a glimpse of. Um, I know that in the original, the character was this sort of punkette character, which felt very fresh and, and inventive. And many, many people developed huge crushes on that character. And this is one of the characters that has been cast by an actor in a different race. So she's, she's not exactly a punkette, but she's, um, but she's still the same basic character. And, um, just so, you know, just so welcome in the sort of um, somber, dark, like I said, edgelordy narratives that we've seen, this kind of warm, sort of, I guess, feminine energy. And she's beautifully played by Kirby Howell Baptiste. I just think she's magnificently cast. And um, 
And she's just a great counterpoint to to him. There's a scene where she takes him into a pub in the, like the Middle Ages, and and she's trying to get him to loosen up, and he's such a stiff. And instead of that being like something that sort of puts you off, it becomes funny, which is uh, which is something I really enjoyed. Right. I mean, looking back on it now, I mean, I certainly had a crush uh, on you know, the same man's death, like every other, uh, you know, everyone else at the time. Um, but, you know, looking back on her, she is a little bit of a, you know, manic pixie dream girl type. Um, and Kirby, how Baptiste, you know, plays her is a little more, she still has sort of the same sense of humor. And it's an interesting flip that, uh, you know, the character of dream who you might expect to be sort of more, um, you know, sort of flamboyant or whatever is this really mopey dour guy. And then death is the one who has this like sort of bright and upbeat and, you know, like death is just part of life. Yada, yada, yada. So, but um, yeah, she, she plays her really well. It's, it's a purely sort of this episode, which combines two issues of the comic. These are both sort of pure character interludes and that's a sort of refreshing change of pace too. But yes, yeah. So I love, um, this half of the episode, and then we get into uh, the second half, which you mentioned, which is about Dream's um, friendship with a man named Hob Gadling, who basically uh, decides he's in a pub in the Middle Ages saying something about how, you know, he never wants to die. Um, and so Death kind of is like looking at her brother and is like, hey, you know, what if I uh, what if I tell this guy, you know, he never has to die uh, unless he decides to. And then so Dream comes back and meets with him. Um, every century uh, for like seven or eight centuries. I think um, this also kind of gives the show a chance to make some little time hopping jokes about aspiring playwright in the pub named uh, William Shakespeare, who's trying to crack his first play. You know, it becomes an episode that's, I mean, just about dreams, loneliness, about, you know, why he's sort of so mopey and difficult to connect with. Um, and that this human being he sees once every century is sort of the closest thing he has to a friend. Laura, what did you think of this interlude? It's also another storyline that I really liked from the comics, partly because Dream becomes really enraged at Hob, and a bit when Hob suggests that he is lonely and might enjoy Hobbes' company. And then they don't see each other for a while, but then Dream finally sort of breaks down and realizes that he really misses the guy. And it, it is like a humanizing note with him. Like he has all of these sort of tempestuous romances in his past, but that also feels a little on the sort of emo scale, you know, <laughs> that you would associate with this sort of gothic guy, like he has all these tormented lost loves. But this is just like a guy that he just sits around and has a drink and shoots the shit with and and he finally has to admit that it, it is really important to him. I, I, I like it. I, I'm a sucker for that sort of thing. So let's talk about the bonus episode now. There were 10 episodes of this that ended with um, Dream sort of working things out with Rose and the, and the Dream Vortex. Um, and we thought that was the end of the season. And then lo and behold, a couple weeks later, another episode turns up containing what I think it's fair to say are sort of two of the fan favorite issues of the comic, um, which is a, a Dream of a Thousand Cats and Calliope. Um, and having sort of complained that the show um, doesn't really mix up the styles in an interesting way the way that the comic book does, this one starts off with a 20-minute cartoon about cats. Laura, are you a cat person? Or are you a Dream of a Thousand Cats person? What did you think? 
I do like Dream of a Thousand Cats, although it is also a little on the edgelordy side of like, you know, uh, if the cats could take over, they would just chomp us up and play with us like toys, which I suppose is true, but, you know, you don't really like to think about it. Um, This actually, an interesting thing about this animated sequence is that it uses audio from the audio production. So we're not hearing Tom Sturridge voicing the cat, the dream cat, the the cat that is the equivalent of dream. It's James McElvoy. And his characterization of dream is much more sort of passionate and Byronic. And while I like the Sturridge's version, I also appreciate in an animated character in particular <laughs> that, it, that it is more animated. You know, it's a kind of a upsetting story. It's not a cute little cat story. It's about cats plotting rebellion against the human race. I liked it. Yeah, it's a, it kind of seems like kind of a trifle, but I liked it. It seems entirely realistic to me that if cats ruled the world, they would absolutely eat us up in a second and have no uh, gratitude for all our years of like, you know, playing with feathers on sticks with them. Um, Yes. So I liked it. Um, Yeah, they get to bring in some great guest cast for this episode, including Sandra Oh, who plays sort of the the main dream cat. I can see why they wouldn't want to end the season with it initially, because it's a sort of a grace note. But it is, you know, a cool thing that I don't think Netflix has done very often before, where they just kind of drop this thing as a surprise a little bit later. And it made sort of a nice addition to it. Um, The other half of this episode, more like two-thirds, is the story um, Calliope, which is one about a sort of struggling author who makes a a deal... uh, Exactly with the devil, but basically takes over this captive muse from another writer named Erasmus Fry and sort of imprisons her so that he can have continued inspiration and become a very successful writer. Not surprisingly, this doesn't work out for him in the end. Um, But Laura, um, as a book person, what did you think of this one? You know, always depictions of the author's life in films and television are not particularly accurate but I, I it's just a fantasy of that and i am and i'm willing to go with it it's also a little less dark than the comic because the implication in the comic or i think it's actually spelled out in the comic is that in order to get ideas from the muse he has to rape her so he has her like basically like a sex slave chained up in a in a room um, or imprisoned in a room and he just goes up and rapes her whenever he needs ideas which is extremely dark but also like a weirdly gendered view of of <laughs> what a writer does so there's an interesting consent thing going on with this because of course the muse also just inspires people willingly it's just that in this case it's not willing like dream in the in the first episode she's a prisoner what i like about this is that this series works best as an anthology where Dream just kind of comes in and participates a little bit to sort of bend the action one way or the other. I really would like to see this series become something like Night Gallery or The Twilight Zone, where um, the Rod Serling character actually participates in the action. Um, The other thing that I always liked about the comic is when Dream comes to the aid of Calliope, who is his ex-wife, in order to get the, the writer to release her, he 
infects him with the this kind of overflowing ideas like he just keeps having so many ideas for stories that it it's actually tormenting him and I always thought that that character was a little like Neil Gaiman himself, like that is a little bit of a self-portrait, just because he just has so many sort of ideas of the sort that that character comes up with. Right, right. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's true. I mean, there's definitely some self-portraiture in this. Um, there's a bit where Rick Maddock, um, this author who is routinely raping the muse for inspiration, um, is at a party for one of his books and um, is you know going off about the, to this woman about how he considers himself a feminist writer and um, and it's just this you know pretty pointed and a little um, easy but nonetheless uh, like well taken satire sort of male feminism and that's like. You know, that, that's one of the moments where it feels like, oh, they, they have actually been paying attention for the last few decades, because I don't think that was quite as prominent in the original issue as it is now. This story, this even more than the diner story, like this one feels a little bit um, like edgelordy to me. So it's not my favorite note to sort of end the whole season on. Like, I'd rather they went out with, like, you know, cats eating people. Um, but but as you say, I mean, I think I mean, there's only so much you can do with the character of, like, oh, this immortal god who is learning what it means to be human. Um, that's hard. I mean, it was even hard for the comic to make sort of 75 issues about it. And it's, you know, it is sort of better often when Dream is just the sort of conduit for some human action that you know it's a harder thing to do with the tv series because it's like you want to see the main character but i do think if they get a second season which is not yet a certain thing but it would be nice to see them take the, the series kind of further in that direction laura thank you so much for spoiling the sandman with me uh, i hope we can do this again sometime oh it's been so much fun thanks for inviting me so that's our show Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer today is Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of audio at Slate. For Laura Miller, I'm Sam Adams. Thanks for listening. <laughs>